Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Madeleine Albright. Madeleine Albright is a former Secretary of State in the Clinton administration, a former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. She is chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group, and her latest book, Hell and Other Destinations, a 21st Century Memoir, has just been published. Uh, Secretary Albright, Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much. And thank you. So we're going to first all kick off by talking about the book. You call it a 21st century memoir, but just to remind you, Secretary Albright, you have already written a memoir a few years ago. So what was the inspiration for this memoir? Well, this one uh, actually was, uh, just to make clear, was written before the virus issue. Right. Um, the reason that I wrote it is that people keep asking me what, you know, how I want to be remembered. And I said, I want to be remembered. I'm still here. And so I was trying to show the different things that I have done since I left office. And since I've always thought that I wanted to have whatever I was doing next more interesting than what I'd just been doing, uh, not easy if you've been Secretary of State, but I've <laughs> said yes to everything that was suggested to me. And um, I'm involved in a lot of different things in terms of uh, teaching at, at Georgetown University and having a business and uh, chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute and a Aspen and a variety of things. And I try in the book to show how all the things that I do actually go together and how I learn from one experience and take that to the other. My best, uh, the, the, my greatest capability is connecting dots. So that's what this is about. Okay. Well, this podcast will be essentially about foreign policy, obviously, but I just want to, at the beginning, point out to our listeners, this book is full of insights, uh, as you're maybe hinting at just now, about different stages of your career and advice about how different situations could evolve going forward. But it's also extremely witty. It, it's very self-deprecating. Speaking as a Brit, I very much appreciate that. And if I may say so, Secretary Albright, very candid. You talk about the breakup of your marriage. You're very open about things that have come into your life in the past. You don't try and gloss over things and sugarcoat them, do you? Well, I, I decided it was worth really telling people what happens and how things are and how one thing leads to another and often good things come out of bad ones. And so um, I did have a good time writing it. People don't, um, they're always surprised that I have a sense of humor. So I, I <laughs> how that worked. <laughs> right. Okay. I would like to ask you also, if I may, about uh, your views on the, the European Union's place in the world. It seems that the, the European Union is going through yet another one of many existential crises. Uh, it's trying to work its place in the world uh, with the United States on the one hand, China on the other. It keeps talking about itself as a, as a geopolitical uh, European Commission. It talks about strategic autonomy even digital sovereignty, and it does feel slightly squeezed between the U.S. and the China as we speak. What advice would you give to the European Union about how it should position itself now in this world of quite, quite strong world powers? Well, it won't surprise you, given uh, that you know my background, that I was born in Europe, and, um, and I kind of consider myself the epitome of the Euro-Atlantic relationship, um, and followed, obviously, developments in Europe, um, either personally in, in various positions or historically through um, studying the history, I do know that uh, how Europe fits together, how we operate, the various structures is something that has been changing and um, is uh, 
very germane, I think, at this point, as the Europeans are working together um, in ways to kind of mitigate some of the um, pandemic issues and um, economic issues and refugees and then trying to position itself between the United States and China and Russia. So there are an awful lot of things going on. Um, I do think that um, Europe can and should play a very important part in terms of the evolution of uh, democracies and market uh, systems and relationships. So I think it's a very exciting time for Europe. Um, and I look forward to really kind of picking apart what I said with you because of the kinds of things that are going on in Brussels um, and how, in fact, it interacts with the issues in the United States and um, competition slash cooperation with the Chinese. So a lot to talk about. But I think it's in a better position at the moment than it has been in quite a long time. And people are kind of talking about the Brussels effect of the various yeah. uh, parts in policy that the uh, Brussels um, uh, officials are taking at this moment. Well, I think even its fiercest critics, the EU's fiercest critics, recognize it as a major economic power. As you say, the Brussels effect in terms of regulation, it's a great antitrust fighter and champion of consumer rights. But when it comes to the political arena, it seems to be on thinner ice. And there's a, there's a narrative out there at the moment that maybe that the EU is being slightly unrealistic and overambitious in trying to assert a more political persona, if you like. Well, it's interesting because I think that um, I always believe that individuals uh, working within institutions can make a very large difference. I've been fascinated to watch, obviously, the relationship with, between President Macron and Chancellor Merkel, and then um, Van der Heimen's, you know, uh, as her role in terms of uh, looking at the economy and how all that works. And so I think that there are individuals that are playing a very large role. Um, and I do think that there are issues that have been created for the economies as a result of some of the things I mentioned earlier, uh, which are um, the effect of uh, refugees, pandemics, uh, and generally economic situations. And so to see Brussels take a, um, a fairly forward-leaning role in terms of how to deal with debt issues, um, and a variety of issues that affect the, the fiscal and monetary policy of the countries. Yeah, as you know, there's, there's talk about a, a kind of Cold War emerging between the United States on one hand and China on the other. Uh, foreign policy experts talk about a possible G2 comprising those two nations where, where the EU does not figure at all. Is that a, a rather uh, overstatement and exaggeration? Well, I, I do think it's an exaggeration. I do think that we are obviously concerned about what's going on in Sino-American relations that seem to be in one of their very worst phases, uh, some due to um, the natural kind of competition from a rising power. I, I don't know whether Europeans talk about it as much as uh, the American kind of think tanky people do about the Thucydides uh, trap and yes. the power of the rising uh, country and China is definitely rising and they have uh, asserted themselves in a variety of areas through um, the Belt and Road uh, initiative. I've been saying that the Chinese must be getting very fat because the belt is getting larger and larger and <laughs> not only have um, economic influence in some parts of Europe but they certainly do in um, 
Africa, and they are moving into a variety of areas in Latin America. So that is going on. Then there are the issues to do with their military behavior in the South and East China Sea, um, which does seem very threatening in terms of navigational rights um, and their uh, relationship now made more complex by their behavior in Hong Kong, which affects their behavior with Taiwan, which affects us. So there are a number of areas where they, we are in competition with the Chinese. Uh, and yet at the same time, there are some areas out there that require cooperation, um, that you don't have to be a genius to know to deal with um, not just pandemics, but with climate change and proliferation. And so it's the art of statecraft in terms of how the U.S. and China relate to each other. And then there is the European component, because I think for a long time, the United States has seen Europe as a partner in a number of different aspects and hoping that as democracies, we could act together uh, just generally, but specifically vis-a-vis -vis China. And so um, that is not happening as much as I think would be useful. But if, if I say with respect though, that maybe the United States is giving us a slightly less nuanced uh, analysis of China than the European Union. Every, you mentioned it a bit in your previous remarks, but everybody's quoting the moment a, a paper going back to March of last year from the European Union, where people focus on the fact that they recognize the first time the EU as China being a, a systemic uh, rival. But as you said just now, it also talks about uh, China could be also is a cooperation partner in certain areas uh, and an economic competitor. But isn't that the problem, though, that the, in the current administration in the U.S., doesn't leave, in terms of uh, talking about relations with China, has a much less nuanced and uh, multi-layered analysis of the, how the relationship should develop? Well, definitely, um, it is not nuanced at this moment. Um, and, and let me just say, and we're going to talk about American politics later, but um, what has happened, I, I have not been a witness uh, to any presidential campaign where China doesn't become one of the major issues. And um, even for those that ultimately work out a functioning relationship with the Chinese, i.e. the Clinton administration, during campaigns, it was talking about the butchers of Beijing and not really, and, and so it has, it's always an issue during campaigns. What I think is important and interesting to, to just put in here at the moment, President Obama uh, began to recognize the importance of rebalancing to Asia. Right. And I've uh, said often that the United States is not monogamous. We are Atlantic and a Pacific power. Um, and so uh, Obama made it a point to rebalance to Asia, and uh, this won't surprise you, but as somebody who, as I said, was born in Europe and has good relations with many European leaders, um, which means that they come and complain to me, is they said, uh, when that happened with Obama, why have you abandoned us? Yeah. And I say to them, we haven't abandoned you. You used to be the problem. Um, now you are part of the solution, and the plan, the idea was that we would work together to deal with other areas of the world and specifically China. So um, there is kind of a sense of you're not, for the Europeans, you're not paying enough attention. Uh, and then there's the exacerbation of our relationship with the Chinese. Uh, and then the part that I mentioned in terms of the Chinese not being quiescent and with the U.S. in many ways being uh, absent from world leadership. 
uh, the Chinese are filling the vacuum. So there are an awful lot of dynamic issues going on um, that, that have an effect on the questions that we're dealing with today. Right. In that case, Evo, could I jump a bit ahead and, and look forward to November this year and the presidential elections? And we shouldn't tend Providence, obviously, we certainly can't look in any kind of crystal ball. But in the event of uh, Vice President Biden uh, becoming president, um, as you said, these issues have been there before in the Obama days and the Clinton days when you were Secretary of State. But what difference would that, would that make the arrival of Joe Biden in the White House in terms of the Sino relations? This will not surprise you when I say this. There will be an understanding of what national security policy is about, uh, and a way of expressing it uh, that makes more sense than a tweet. So um, I do think that um, President, um, Vice President Biden was vice president when President Obama did the rebalancing. And right. so it is something that he's obviously very cognizant of. I have known Joe Biden a very long time. and. Um, he is one of the most knowledgeable Americans in terms of national security policy first because of his time in the Senate and his time as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, and his genuinely uh, understanding, genuine understanding of the issues. And uh, previously you talked about nuance, uh, something that he understands in terms of relationships. I do think that he... Uh, would be looking at how to mend our relationships across the board um, and uh, not to be, by the way, I was at the Munich Security Conference in March it, and as an American who's been there many times, either as a participant or as a visitor, uh, I was mortified by the kinds of things that went on this time when um, the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense were there. They were speaking from the stage as if they were in outer space um, and definitely did not relate to what the, the sense was that was coming out of what people felt they needed in the 21st century. And so America's either absence or um, lack of nuance is something that has to be replaced by a president who has a very deep understanding of the importance of our relationships and doesn't see the U.S. as a victim, uh, that everybody's taking advantage of us, but as a partner. You mentioned just now, Secretary Albright, the, um, the issue of transatlantic relations and your close uh, attachment to that over, over decades, in fact. Uh, do you think the, the part of the problem, though, because there are a particularly low ebb at the moment for reasons we all understand, but if the two sides tend to take each other for granted, I mean, neither is a problem child, as you were suggesting. We tend to think, we tend to have, or we think we have the same values, the same outlook, where liberal democracies, market economies, and that means, therefore, that sometimes we just don't bother to, to nurture the relationship as much as we might. Well, I think that's, that's a very interesting point. Uh, despite the fact that I kind of feel that we all did work on it a lot. I can't okay. kind of in, in my time, whether I was at the UN um, dealing with the, the members from the EU um, and then later Secretary of State really did spend a lot of time. Uh, and I do think it has not been an easy relationship. I have to admit that. But I do think we have. And I, it's a combination of taking each other for granted and a combination of having issues in other places where uh, a commonality of values made us think that we could do more things together than I think we really, that, that that does take a lot of work and that was not dealt with. But I have to tell you, out of office, and I write about this in the book, is 
um, looking at NATO in a number of different ways. Right. Um, at the 60th anniversary of NATO, I was asked to um, be every country named an expert um, to help the new Secretary General Rasmussen. And so then Rasmussen chose 12 countries out of that time, 28, automatically irritating 16 countries. And then he had to prepare it. And so we were looking at what the strategic concept for NATO should be at that stage. And believe it or not, it was all about out of area, not anything to do inside um, Europe. And that is obviously switched. So we worked together. We try to understand each other. But I think that uh, good friends often take each other for granted. Okay. Uh, I can't resist the temptation as a Brit to ask you... Uh Madam Secretary, about, about Brexit and uh, how you know the UK always likes to think it has a special relationship with the United States, irrespective of who occupies the, the Oval Office. Um, since the UK has formally left the EU and is negotiating the, the final exit terms, as you know, uh, what do you think, how will the US, even with uh, maybe a Democrat in the White House, uh, consider the UK now, once, since it will no longer be part of this European Union family? I, I so believe in the special relationship, and I think that it will pick up, uh, mainly because there's so many other ties that go on, and we were talking about NATO, that is one of them, uh, and a reason to um, look at a variety of the issues that are, are out there, some that are common issues in terms of dealing with the refugee issues with pandemics, and I do believe in, in the special relationship. Um, uh, a lot will depend, obviously, on the leadership in the UK, uh, but um, it's very hard for people not to think about it. And in my case, um, I actually, I used to sound like you, because um, <laughs> I learned to speak English in England during World War II, and uh, we were there, I write about this also in the book, we, yeah. I was in London during the Blitz, living in Notting Hill Gate before it got fancy, and, um, and really... Um, reading a lot about um, the importance of uh, the relationship of the U.S. and the U.K. and obviously the new Churchill books and everything. And so it's very hard uh, to uh, not constantly refer back to our incredible history together. Right. Okay. Um, you mentioned more than once the, the, the pandemic. Uh, there's a, and you, as you point out, your book is written before the pandemic. Uh, but there's a lot of talk out there, maybe slightly premature about uh, the post-pandemic world we're all going to emerge into hopefully in the not-too-distant future where things, quote-unquote, cannot be the same as before, unquote. Um, do you, how much optimism do you have that, that governments and citizens will, will revisit and review how, how life goes on in, on the world stage in terms of international cooperation about inequality, all these issues that have come to the, to the forefront on the back of the, the pandemic? Well, I think that what... We have not fully recognized until the pandemic is that viruses or climate change know no borders, that there are a number of issues that have to be looked at uh, from that perspective. I also do think, and uh, I really believe this, is that post-pandemic world is going to be very different. Um, the issues are starker in a number of aspects. Um, there are questions that affect the economy, that affect refugees, all the different things that we've been talking about. And I do think that there, um, what has been happening in the United States now, which in addition to the pandemic are the racial issues, um, 
that there are there is an an attempt to deal with that cliche that every crisis is an opportunity um, and that we are going to be looking at uh, a new generation of leaders uh, and those that have a different experience with um, the social media and technology and jobs and each other and a um, and so I am um, hopeful about the post-pandemic time, but it's going to take work, an incredible amount of work and a recognition that we cannot and should not go back to where we were um, last year. A question, if I may briefly, on, on multilateralism. Um, obviously, everybody points a finger at the U.S. now, saying for the past three and a half years, the U.S. has turned it it's back on multilateral organizations and part of your career of course has been very much steeped in being very prominent in such some organizations such as the UN I mean it's maybe one tends to forget that because of the the criticism comes from the the, the Trump administration that some of the, the criticism is well founded whether you're talking about the UN itself even WTO even the WHO is there a danger when people say we need to re reinvest in in multilateralism that we, we tend to forget that some of these organizations could well be badly in need of reform. Is that a fair point? Definitely. I mean, I have said that people, an institution in their 70s need refurbishing. And <laughs> it's the fifth anniversary of the UN. Um, and there are parts that, that don't work. And uh, the American role is something that has to be looked at. By the way, Americans don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables and it ends in ism. But it's <laughs> about partnerships. And I can tell you, I had my own experience with this. When I got to the UN, as you know, there are a number of different budgets. One is the regular budget, which is like a club and you pay your dues. But then there was the peacekeeping budget where the US was, behind, was in arrears on that. And at the same time, my instructions were to get reform at the United Nations. And then what happened was our Congress unilaterally decided to pay less than what was allotted um, by the UN percentage, leading our best friends, you guys, uh, to deliver a line in the General Assembly of Malcolm Rifkin, uh, a line that you'd waited more than 200 years to deliver, representation without taxation. <laughs> and so when we pull back, as has now happened on the WHO, uh, we're not at the table, therefore there will not be uh, a way to kind of uh, adjust the, uh, uh, the organizational aspect of it and to look at how things can be changed. And I believe that the UN, uh, you know, again, is something that we'd invent if uh, it didn't exist now, but it does need fixing. Uh, I just read, for instance, they've decided now to have the General Assembly be virtual, or at least the president of the General Assembly has said that. And the truth is that it that will miss an awful lot of that kind of interaction that diplomats have with each other and will make it more complicated. But there is no way that we can deal with the issues that are out there without the partnership uh, that is required of countries and the U.S. participation in the partnership uh, in, and not just dominating it, but being partners. Right. Well, a final question, if I may, uh, Secretary Albright, I'm going to circle back to your book. Uh, as you said just now, you've uh, since your uh, retirement from public office, you you have your fingers in many pies. You're in, you're involved in many many projects, and and the book talks in great detail about many of them that you are still very active in. And it just makes me wonder to what extent you've very self-deprecatingly again talk to your talk about yourself as a former this, former that, but you're extremely active. 
And I just wonder in this, in this new world order, to use a kind of crass phrase, uh, certainly post-pandemic, and with the need to, to rehabilitate some of these well-established organizations, the role that can be, can be played by sort of non-official organizations, not just NGOs, other bodies out there, all feeling more, it's part of that we all share this world together. We don't just rely on politicians and, and large, rather bureaucratic organizations to do our work for us. We should all get engaged in different ways, or is that a bit too kind of like a Pollyanna way of describing the situation? No, I think definitely, because what has happened is, first of all, we have all been affected by what's been going on, which uh, is a horrible way to all of a sudden understand um, responsibility. But uh, I do think that we get it now in terms of how something that happens in X place will affect us. I also have argued for a very long time that while our international order is based on the nation state, uh, there are so many other aspects to it and that the people that are part of that need to be at the table early. So for instance, at the United Nations, the private sector needs to be there, not just in terms of, of businesses, but in terms of the non-governmental organizations in a variety of ways. I do think young people need to be more a part of the discussion. And there are certain individuals who have played an incredible role in terms of their generosity and their understanding. I think we need to have those that understand science better, uh, but it will require all of us. I do think the thing that worries me um, is that some of the effects that we've been going through has led some countries to uh, move to authoritarian uh, approaches to things. Uh, uh, and uh, one of the things is how authoritarian leaders identify with one group at the expense of another. And we are seeing that in some places now, and that is something that has to be overcome in terms of not, uh, I would like to see uh, the resilience of democracy out there uh, with our partners uh, and that democracy requires people. Um, and so I do think that there needs to be an enlargement of the players that are going to deal with the situation in the post um, pandemic time and the uh, various issues that are out there that require an understanding by the populations of their role in it. So um, to the extent that I, uh, it took me a long time to find my voice and now that I have it, I'm not going to shut up. And so I am going to be talking with those about those kinds of issues. Thank you very much. We have to leave it there, Secretary Albright. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your questions and all you do. Thank you.